Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. This show is brought to you in partnership with the Witherslack Group, experts in special education and care, and John Cat Educational, leading publishers of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at schools in the UK and beyond. Enjoy the podcast. Thanks ever so much for joining me. Last week, I headed down to the Schools and Academy show, and you're going to hear next a series of interviews that I conducted at the Schools and Academy show with all the great and good uh, who popped in to see Teachers Talk Radio uh, at the show. Uh, lots of people uh, popped in to talk to us, and it was wonderful to hear from them. Uh, it's such a challenging time in education at the moment. That's one of the real takeaways that I took from the show, uh, both from the teachers that I spoke to, uh, but also from those who are sort of influential influential within the sector who all spoke about how challenging uh, the time is uh, for everyone in the sector. But also there was sort of shoots of hope. There was some ideas that came through in the conversations that I had, some solutions, uh, some interesting dimensions that maybe I'd personally overlooked. Uh, And it was also nice to be able to hear from people who really do represent the key or some of the key organizations within the education system so sit back enjoy and i'll check back in at the end of the show hello everyone and welcome back to teacher sort radio uh, i've got lord jim knight here who's just been speaking on a panel about all things education um, so i thought we'd start with uh, which I've already asked you actually a few yep. minutes ago, but the sort of um, one of the panels was uh, at Schools and Academy show is fixed around the idea of education by 2030. Um, what were the key takeaways from the panel that you've just sort of sat on there? Well, in particular, it was focused on whether or not we get to a, every school as an academy in, a, in a, a strong trust, as was set out in the school's white paper five centuries of state ago. Um, I think back in March. And um, the conclusion was, uh, it's probably really hard to get there, but that I think most of us think we've probably crossed a tipping point where it would actually just be helpful to go for that. Um, and in doing so, for us to probably reimagine what we think a strong MAT, a strong multi-academy trust should look like. Um, and also, be clear about what we think the role of the local authorities should be. So, for example, in my view, school admissions should be the responsibility of the local authority, not just to administer it, but take away the admissions authority role from those maths that have it, um, because we there should be a level playing field, and the um, kids should go to the best school for them, and not have schools selecting kids. and. Uh, there are things like that where if local authorities can be the people who are the unashamed champions of the children, especially the more disadvantaged children from the authority, and they're then placing them and getting them educated in the best schools, regardless of whether they run them or not, um, we start to move towards the sort of collaborative community level engagement uh, and engagement with democracy that I think we need. Obviously, you've got a background within sort of Labour politics yep. and, and so on. Um, 
and obviously Tony Blair's big thing was education, education, education. Do you think, uh, I mean, what's your thinking at the moment? We've had the budget, obviously, today. We've, we've got lots of things happening in that regard. Do you think we as a country have lost sight of education, education, education? I think, I, I think we've taken, if you like, a wrong turn. Now, we have immediate massive funding problems. Yeah. But if I look uh, across all of the departments, the only two departments that have enjoyed any significant real terms increases in the last 10, 12 years are uh, health and the home office. Education's done pretty well in, in actually only falling behind by about, by about two or three percent. Now that needs to be sorted. We need to resolve the funding problems that exist in our schools if it's going to be a, a, a priority. And particularly in some places within the system. You know, early years, we all know investment in early years reaps really strong dividend. We know that six forms and the post-16 funding has been catastrophically cut and we need to think about that. We've got massive adult skills problems, you know. We can look across the whole of the education system and see some really big challenges that need to be addressed. And so I would like to see a Prime Minister, as Jim Callaghan did uh, with his Ruskin speech you know, way back 50 years ago, as Tony Blair did in uh, coming into power in, in 97, um, really show that they prioritise education, that they want to have a national debate around what education is for. You know, I'm of the view that our curriculum is out of date and needs refreshing. I think we need to develop the social, emotional and physical literacy of children alongside the cognitive ability and academic excellence of children. Um, it's not an either-or. Um, and so the broad and balanced curriculum is a debate that I think we should have much more upfront. Employers are really dissatisfied with what we've got at the moment. We need to address that. Um, but that needs to happen because there's leadership from the top. To quote David Blunkett's report, do, um, do you want to see less chalk and talk? Yes, uh, you know, I think in pedagogic terms. Um, uh, but you know, in a way, I think, you know, I think teachers want to. You know, they don't want to do chalk and talk. But if the system, if Ofsted, if uh, you know, what, what ministers want as expressed in their various levers and buttons they've got to press. Um, is that they've got to do more standing at the front of the classroom and have kids sitting in rows. I'm not sure most teachers think that that's the right thing in every circumstance. Um, we should trust the profession more. Yeah, and, and it's not then for me to say about chalk and talk. Pedagogy, I think, should be in the hands of the professionals. What do you think of the phrase knowledge-rich curriculum? I'm so, I am somewhat disappointed at the return of Nick Gibb and the knowledge-rich brigade. Um, that's what I'm thinking about in terms of balance. Knowledge is really important. Skills are really important. Uh, being equipped to care for yourself with a mindset to care for others and for the natural environment, those are really important. You know, we, we have a, you know, my 11-year-old at home, she's likely to be in work towards, and, until somewhere close to the end of the century. By which time, it's going to be a radically different world with machines doing a lot of the work that's being done at the moment because of artificial intelligence, um, you know, the development of the metaverse, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Lots going on, lots of change. Is the planet going to be around then? I don't know. Um, 
and we're not edu we're not educating people to be the problem solvers, the curious kids, to help us solve those problems. You know, I asked some some um, 16, 17 year olds recently for reasons to be cheerful, and the reasons to be cheerful are that they're going to be making the decision soon and fix the mess that my generation has created, and we have created a mess. But we need to educate them so that they can fix those problems by being more curious problem solvers than they are at the moment. You mentioned earlier, just kind of sort of swinging back on the issue of, of, of sort of um, funding and education. And, and we, we, we talked already about uh, education needing investment in different areas. Where do you think that money should come from? Where? Because ultimately we can say, look, funding should increase in this and this and this. Where should that money come from? Because ultimately, it's got to come from somewhere. Well, in the end, it has to come from people paying taxes. Yeah, that's how public services are funded. People not according to this trust, but yeah, yeah people <laughs> and businesses pay tax, uh, and yeah, that's what happens. Uh, there isn't. You know, despite Liz Trust and quite a there, there are no magic money trees around, and we have to we have to have an honest conversation with the public about where priorities lie. And um, now, so there, then the more sophisticated answer would be, okay, where is it being spent at the moment? Though you would spend it differently. That's, but that's basically what I'm trying to ask. That's a much, much harder question um, because there's a huge amount of need. You know, I think we've got massive housing problems in this country and I see very little resource being spent on that. Um, I think we've got to move towards um, a green-led growth where, and, and a, a quite a different economy. And, and obviously the trite politicians answer as to where we, spend, where we find the money is we find it through growth. And any politician of any colour will tell you that. But isn't that what Liz Truss said they and were going to do yeah. by reducing taxes? Yeah, because she had an ideological uh, idea Position, yeah. that was proven to not work and has cost us £20 billion pounds that now we're having to all pay more taxes to cover the cost of. Yeah, that's really shocking. Um, but I think there's a more sustainable model of growth, which is about investing in people and investing in green technology, um, that can go some of the way, but I'm sure there may be so, you know, at the moment, if you look within the Department of Education, we spent an awful lot of money on structures, on consultants, on bits of the system to... Huge amounts of money. ...to help people academise and so on. I'm not sure that that is money brilliantly spent. I'm not sure spending £43 million pounds on Oak National Academy becoming an arm's length body is a great use of public money. I'm, I wasn't sure, in fact I know it wasn't, a great idea to spend £120 million pounds on the festival of Brexit, which became branded Unboxed, which a yeah, quarter of a million people went to. That's a ridiculous use of public money. Yeah, so there are some bits of money kicking around that we might be able to spend more wisely, but yeah, that's, that's frankly somebody else's job right now. The Department for Education, uh, with their new Education Secretary, have, have sort of come out and said in the last few days that um, they would like school leaders and the, the education profession in general to think very carefully about going on strike. Um, they, they, they have said 
that um, that they want the education sector to consider the issues around inflation next year and by putting the wages up and so on this would cause more inflation what do you think of that sort of argument do you think do you, do you support do you think teachers should go on strike next year Look, if I were a teacher a school leader a union member looking at the situation at the moment I think I probably would vote to strike I'm currently the chair of a multi-academy trust at 28 schools. I really hope they don't strike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So what I'm saying is the right to strike is really important. The uh, recruitment and retention issues within teachers are really problematic. And uh, teacher salaries are not keep and, and non-teaching salaries are not keeping pace with the high levels of inflation. Um, so, you know, I think it's a really important issue as to how we resolve that. There is not much money in the system to, for schools to have to cover off the cost of a big pay increase without money coming from the Exchequer. I don't know what, um, what Jeremy Hunt has said because I've been yeah. here yeah. Uh, around more money. I doubt if there is much more money to cover that um, and that he will make an assumption in the Treasury's thinking of 2% for public sector pay. And, you know, we have to resolve that. Uh, it's yeah. not an easy answer. Yeah. I mean, do you think that within sort of the realm of... I mean, basically, more teachers than ever. Even five years ago when everyone was saying more teachers than ever are wanting to leave. I would think that, just based on... This is purely anecdotal. But the number of teachers that... We, as an organisation, Teachers Talk Radio, have saying to us, we're thinking of leaving. We're, we're, we're looking to leave. We're, we're, and, and obviously, I think with COVID as well, with the remote the sort of birth of more remote jobs and remote work, that becomes more attractive. The cost of commuting has gone up. You know, all these other factors as well, on top of the sort of unresolved workload issues in many schools. Ultimately, what... what something radical needs to happen so like do you think the do you think government are aware that, that at some point there is going to be a breaking point there's not going to be enough teachers left uh well yes they uh they're being told enough and they can see their own data they'll be also looking at reduction in pupil numbers coming through primary at the moment and be going well maybe we don't need as many primary school teachers and that if some leave the, that end of the profession. Um, that's not the end of the world. They'll see a, a bubble currently going through secondary schools of larger class sizes, and they'll be kind of anxious about whether or not that is sustainable, uh, particularly in the shortage subject. And that's where the problems really hit. If lots of maths teachers, English teachers, Design and technology, you know, you can yeah. look at a, a modern languages teacher, all decide to leave. Yeah, I, I would imagine we already have quite a number of secondary schools without anyone with a maths degree. Um, and, and that's problematic. Um, and they need to be worried about that, and I imagine they are. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, final question now. Uh, one thing you would add to education in the UK and one thing you would remove from it? Great question. <laughs> um, so, 
at the moment I am particularly interested in how we place schools much more strongly at the heart of their communities as community institutions and for much of the time all weekend a lot of evenings we've got these great resources empty um, and right now families could do on a Saturday with a place they can go to where they can get breakfast and lunch that's warm where they can do family learning you know kids can do some more learning if they want to on a self-directed basis perhaps with some tutoring where you can have a repair shop you can have um, access to technology that they might not have at home we can deal with space poverty and data poverty um, I would love to see more of that and some liaison with local authorities to provide some very small amounts of funding to be able to allow schools to open resolve their safeguarding issues attached to all of that and really help communities define what they're there for what do you think to those that would say that's like the nanny state there would be those who'd say it's the nanny state I would say look at the evaluation of extended schools that we had towards the end of the Labour government um, under Blair and Brown and see that it works really well. Look at what Matthew Moss School in Rochdale has done with D6, which is where that idea uh, germinates from. Um, look at community schools in the States. Look at what they're doing in, um, in Tamil Pradesh in uh, India with a similar idea. Look at what they're doing in Denmark with a similar idea. This works, works really well. So I'd do that. And what would I take away? I would take away uh, phonics screening tests. I would take away most of the testing that we do in schools. I would take away exams at 16. Um, uh, I would end the national curriculum at 14. Um, uh, free up 14 to 19 as a, a, a phase um, that is much more coherent without that unnecessary interruption. So um, I think we can release a lot of money back into the system that we're currently spending with examination bodies and, and assessment. What would you replace examination at 16 with? Well, why do we need an exam at 16? Uh, you know, it's there because we used to have a school leaving age of 16. We don't anymore. Um, it's probably quite helpful for university admissions. But we need to move schools away from being designed around the needs of universities and having them designed around the needs of children getting into a fulfilling life. And that includes universities, it also includes work. Um, we need to explore all of that much better than we do 14 to 19. And then I like what the Times Education Commission did in talking about a British baccalaureate and I think and a rapid qualification at the end of that, all of that 14 to 19 phase much as Mike Tomlinson talked about all of those years ago in 2005, six, that's, that's in my head where we need to get to. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Hi, and welcome back to the Schools and Academy show with Teachers Talk Radio in Birmingham. Delighted now uh, for a little interview about Ofsted. Uh, and I'm going to let my guest introduce himself. Hi there, uh, my name is Chris Russell, I'm the National Director for Education for Ofsted. Big job. It is a big job, but it's an excellent job, one I enjoy very much. Uh, so let's start with uh, sort of your talk today, um, and maybe you could just give us in 30 seconds sort of 
a breakdown of anything new or, or sort of interesting that you've shared today that you think people in the teaching community might like to know? Yeah, I mean, I, my talk was really split into two halves. One was looking back over the last 14 months because we went back to routine inspection uh, 14 months ago. So it was to reflect on some of those things, uh, some of our inspection outcomes, some of the things that we were finding, some of the, the impact of COVID that we were seeing in inspection. Uh, I think the, the thing that I'd want to stress more than anything is actually if we look at inspection outcomes over that period, um, you know, they were very similar to the inspections that we were getting, the outcomes we were getting before COVID. And I think that reflects, you know, how well typically schools have responded to the challenges of COVID. The second part was a look forward, really, and a look at our strategy and some of the big areas of work that are coming up for us over the next few months and years. Do you, do you think that with the new framework, do you think the new framework in terms of grading is more reliable than the previous framework? Yeah, I mean, we think it's a better framework generally. We've also worked, it's obviously really important that our inspection judgments are reliable, so we've worked very hard on that. We did a huge amount of work and when we were developing the framework um, to, um, to, to work with the sector, to, to pilot, to engage, to test it out. So we were very confident when we introduced the inspection framework. Um, but we actually worked really hard on training as well. We've increased the quality and the amount of training that we do with inspectors. Because I think the key to reliability uh, is working closely with all inspectors, is training them carefully, and ensuring that we've got that, that monitoring and quality assurance in place. There are many out there, particularly if you think of David Blunkett's recent report and lots of other things that have come about um, where sort of the stripping down of Ofsted as, as sort of, or even the abolition from, from some unions has been on, on the agenda. Um, do you think that Ofsted is too big? No, I mean, I don't, and I think there, there are advantages. I mean, for quite a few years now, we have covered the whole range of remits. And I think over that time, um, while of course we have specialists who are working in their areas, we can really see the benefits of people working together um, across those different remit areas, which you wouldn't have if each of those remits was successful. So no, I don't think it's too big. There's been, so a lot of the sort of talk, if you like, on sort of um, social media around Ofsted, the new framework, focus on curriculum. Many people have said this is a positive thing. However, there are those who have also said that, I guess it has led to, uh, if you like, some of that same sort of tick box uh, nature stuff that may be um, lethal mutations uh, of things. I mean, do you think that it's Ofsted's responsibility or school leaders' responsibility to stop those lethal mutations or to halt those lethal mutations, or do you think it's both? Yeah, I mean, I think the inspection framework and the way that we operate it, it you know, that certainly isn't about tick box, and it's certainly not about looking for tick box. It is about um, it's about that school and how things manifest in that school. Um, I think everybody's got a responsibility to to make sure that schools are doing the right things for their children and young people, um, and certainly not doing things that they think we want as, as inspectors. And actually, I think it's to keep up my job, and I'll do whatever I can, and my colleagues I know are similarly committed to make sure that we get those messages out. Because I think you know, the, 
best thing that we can do is engage as much as possible to ensure that people understand the nature of the inspection framework, how inspection operates, and give that kind of reassurance, really. So certainly, you know, I'm committed to that. We've, we've done quite a few webinars recently to try and really push those key messages home about what inspection is and what inspection isn't. Do you sort of, I mean, obviously we are in the middle of, if you like, the, the most critical period for teachers quitting that we've probably ever had since since 2008. Um, do you sympathise with sort of heads and leaders and, and teachers who who feel a lot of pressure and, 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 and stress because of the inspection process? And, and sort of how do you want to mitigate against that or help that? Yeah, I totally recognise that, that um, being a head, being a teacher are intrinsically challenging jobs. And I think, you know, typically people do an excellent job. And my own daughter uh, is a teacher, so I, I very much see that. What does myself. she teach? She's, she's primary, she's a primary school teacher. Um, so, um, you know, I, th I think I'd come back there to, to what I said before. I do think inspection has an important part to play. I think it's most schools' experience of inspection is a very constructive process and one that supports their development and improvement. The key, none of, none of us want um, heads or teachers to be, to be stressed about inspection. We all recognise it's high stakes, so you'll never totally, as I said in my talk, you'll never totally eliminate that, but we will do whatever we can through that communication, um, through engaging with the sector to, to minimise any pressures around inspection. This is sort of my last question now, but on the issue of sort of Ofsted grades, um, I know that's been a debate over several years in terms of either changing that system, getting rid of it. I know one suggestion I had was instead of four grades, to have two grades, not yet met and met, um, rather than outstanding goods, requires improvement adequate. Do you think that those grades, just by their sheer titles, can be damaging? I mean, I think there's very interesting discussions, aren't there, about what's right and what's the right. And of course, we've had you know, differences in the numbers of grades over the year. I think we had seven at one point. Um, I think there's a very settled system now, which actually other sectors have adopted around the four-grade system. Um, so I think it's well understood. Nothing's perfect, but I think generally it works well and people understand what it means. I think there was an issue around outstanding when the schools were exempt, so they got that outstanding judgment and they weren't expected for years. Um, that's all changed now and I think that's for the good because I think that was problematic. I think what's important is that there's a regular refresh of those grades so that they are up to date and people, 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 they can change and people can understand Do you think that sometimes, I mean, how does Ofsted ensure consistency across its inspector's body? I mean, how do you make sure? It's one of the most common complaints is, you know, people have a bad experience, the next person has a good experience. So what is Ofsted doing to try and mitigate against that? Yeah, I mean, this is clearly a really important area for us, particularly because we have our own HMI who work for us all the time, but then we have a huge body of Ofsted inspectors, the vast majority of whom come from the sector. We think that's, that's great. That has all sorts of advantages both ways. But of course, it, it does mean we have to work hard to make sure that we've got the consistency. I think the thing that made the most difference there was when we took on the inspectors to work directly with us, those contracted OI inspectors, a number of years ago. And that means we have a very direct relationship 
all the other important things, you know, we've really worked hard on training, really getting training right, because that's the biggest thing I think we can do uh, in terms of ensuring consistency. And within regions, you know, the HMI, the, the employed inspectors work very closely with, with OI, so we have mechanisms there to make sure that we're checking things carefully to make sure that we've, we've got that consistency, because it's absolutely vital and brilliant. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you Thanks for coming over. Cheers. Thank you. Everybody uh, watching this back, watching it live, whatever. Uh, we're live on Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn throughout the day at the Schools and Academy show. Lots of interviews. I've got Jody Lopez, otherwise known as J Lo. Um, what is your role, J Lo? Uh, well, I have many hats, so I'm here with a one hat on today, which is I do support pro bono um, schools, local schools to me in Nottinghamshire with um, their EdTech rollout and uh, computing curriculum. Um, but I, my, my other hat is that I am a consultant for EdTech companies to help them with um, getting their products right and helping them to understand schools and understand teachers and their needs. Um, and then I have another hat which is teaching more to judge in the digital innovation category. Right, tell me about, I'm interested in this then, What what is the best digital innovation that you have seen happening in the last 12 months? I mean, it's not even so much the... the and innovation it's, it's it's schools that are doing amazing things so um, I'm not going to spoil too much because next week on the one show every night next week there are announcements of who our gold winners are but if you go on the Teaching Awards website you'll see some of our silver winners already um, so one of them is um, really innovative just in the way they roll out technology and enable parents and students to get on board one of them is doing amazing things in esports, which is a huge up-and-coming area. It's one of the largest growing uh, kind of industries in the world right now. So there's really amazing stuff on that. Some people are doing amazing things with robotics and taking teams to robotics championships around the world. Um, so everyone's doing something different. I, I, the great thing about the teaching awards, which we don't see so much on Twitter, because there's this constant discussion of who's doing it this way versus who's doing it this way and this polarisation. But every school we see is doing different things, but they're all doing it really, really well, whatever they're doing, and in all the categories that's true. Um, so yeah, it's just about seeing amazing people doing amazing things and having an impact on lives day in, day out, no matter how they're doing it. Class. And um, what do you think is the biggest sort of challenge for schools at the moment when it comes to digital technologies? Is it money? Two things always, always the case, and even more so at the minute, is money and time. So money, obviously, people are really scared to spend at the minute. They don't, I mean, you know, new budget even today, don't know where the money is. People are on an uneven ground and they won't spend in that situation. They're going to wait until things settle, same as people aren't going to go and get a mortgage tomorrow. People aren't going to go and spend a load of money tomorrow. But also, time and CPD has always been the biggest stopper of schools actually using whatever they do spend their money on well enough for it to pay them back in terms of efficiencies and, and money saved on printing and all these different things that EdTech is good for. Um, CPD is always what stops it once you've spent the money. So it's money and then it's time. Right, quick fire now yep. to finish off. Best education app, you have to name one. 
best education app? I think for teachers, actually, not even an app, but Canva as something to help you with making things and creating resources and not spending all your time on something. And then an app, probably it, I'm going to come back to kind of purple mashes and a good all-rounder in terms of it's a, it's a web-based, but it's got all those different apps that help you do those things. Great computing curriculum for Key Stage 1 and Key Stage 2. So, yeah, purple mash. I'm going to chat about Purple what? There. Purple mash. Okay. By Too Simple. And it's got, it's got all sorts of different things within it, but it really... Yeah. For IT particularly, it's got your whole computing curriculum. It's got coding apps and everything within it, so you can okay. do your whole curriculum through it. Okay. But they also do English and maths and history and all sorts of different things. Favourite, that was not a quick fire answer. Favourite, <laughs> favourite social media site? Uh, Twitter, still. Sorry. Least favourite social media site? Oh, TikTok. It's horrible on there. <laughs> right. I'm old. <laughs> Jody, thank you very much for taking the time to stop by and enjoy the rest of your day. Hello everyone and welcome back again to Teachers Talk Radio at the Schools and Academy Show in Birmingham. I'm now joined by Steve Rollett. Steve, if you just want to introduce yourself very quickly to everyone. Yeah, hi everyone. Um, my name is Steve Rollett. I'm the Deputy Chief Executive of the Confederation of School Trusts. Brilliant. Uh, Steve, what's been your uh, sort of, you can either do, take away from the day so far, we're at about lunchtime, or what you're looking forward to for the rest of the day. No, you're, you're heading off, aren't you? I've, I've, I've got to go. So what's been your yeah. takeaway then? Well, so uh, it's been a brilliant morning so far. Um, I was involved in a conversation on the main stage, really looking at the 2030 agenda and all schools being part of a, uh, part of a trust, which obviously uh, I, I, I advocate for and something I think is, is, is not a bad idea at all. Um, but what we did in the, in the conversation is we picked through some of the issues, um, some of the challenges. Of course, there were questions that some schools have got about autonomy. We talked about some of that stuff. Uh, and also we talked you know, really obviously about the current funding policies you know, and the, and the, the situation schools and trusts find themselves in. Of course, we were talking before we'd, we'd heard the government announcement and I'm still trying to catch up with that now. I haven't seen it. Um, but, but yeah, it felt like a really important time to have that conversation. Um, talking of sort of uh, teaching at the moment, because uh, obviously we are Teachers Talk Radio, so yeah, I've got yeah. to sort of ask you some questions about yeah. teachers. Um, do you think that teachers should go on strike next year? It's a, really, it's a really good question. I mean, it's not really. It's not. I, I'm not sure that's a question for, that, that I can answer. I suppose what I can say is, you know, we have in our uh, in our country we have really important infrastructure, don't we? That um, of which trade unions and uh, people's ability to strike, I think, is a really important um, right that people have. Um, they have to follow particular procedures and so on. So, like, um, I suppose the theoretical answer is. Um, I think it's important that people have got that right. It's not for me to tell them whether they whether they should or not. It's certainly not, not for me to tell them that they shouldn't. But I think uh, the, the principle in a, in a democracy such as ours is, such as ours is right, and they, that they're being asked, and they'll, they'll tell us what they think. Do, do you think that... I mean, how concerned are you at the moment about sort of teachers leaving and quitting and, and going into other roles? Because that seems to be more than... At any point, certainly since yeah. I entered the profession in 2007 now, especially coming out of COVID with the, the possibilities of remote work and all that. I mean, what what can you and anyone else in the sort of organisations in and around teaching 
sort of do to help that? Yeah, what, so what are you doing to help? What, what am I doing to help? <laughs> no, it's a great question. So firstly, yeah, it's, it is a massive challenge. So I, I realised the other day that I trained to teach 20 years ago. So I've been, I've been in and around teaching for 20 years. I've only been out of the classroom for six, so um, it, I'd agree with you, it feels to me like the most challenging time around recruitment potential. We see that in the data, NFER do some great research on this and they're selling us a very uh, troubling story, uh, the government not being able to hit targets for specific subjects as well. And of course the thing I'm hearing too, which is really interesting as well, is non-teachers leaving the profession as well and leaving, leaving schools. And of course that has an impact on them, also has an impact on on, on teachers, right? Because they're going to rely on those colleagues to help them with particular things in the classroom or support outside the classroom. If those colleagues aren't there, then the, the, the risk is, I think, then does more fall on the shoulders of the teaching workforce that's already feeling the strain of, uh, you know, the pandemic and, you know, all, all, the, all that we've seen in recent years. What am I doing to help? What are we doing at CST to help? Well, we are really clear, actually, that um, we, you know, the reason I advocate for trusts, and, and I, I think schools, uh, you know, ought to be in the family school of democracy, have trust. Um, isn't because I'm some sort of person that's like obsessed with structures and like the legal framework of academisation. I, I think what it does is it connects teachers together. Right? I remember um, as a trainee teacher, and uh, sorry, as a new teacher, NQT as it was back in the day, in the local authority I worked in, it was brilliant. Right? We had a, a really good, thriving uh, history community, right? and we had teachers who would give up a uh, couple of hours every half term to come together in a, in a central venue. We had 50 or 60 history teachers to come together, debating, arguing, sharing resources, all of that good stuff. Um, the way the system is now is that exists in some places, that exists in pockets, it doesn't exist everywhere. What, what I, my vision really must support with the advocacy for the trust system is because really fundamentally I think that is where we will see the next generation of that work happening and we're already seeing it in trusts. But to sort of push back against yeah. that in some senses there would be those who would say it doesn't really matter what system or no, what, yeah, what, yeah. what sort of no. what the system behind the yeah, school yeah. is. Yeah, no, no, and I agree with that, which is why I say I'm not advocating for, the, for that system on the system's yeah. sake. But there is a difference. And what we saw, and what I saw in that um, experience I had in the work before, is what changed over time was individual schools, individual people. Sometimes there was a different agenda, um, a different clash of personality, whatever it happened to be, and people would, would, they wouldn't go, right? And the thing about uh, like a disciplinary community is it really relies on engagement. Okay? Professional development really relies on teachers being connected to each other. Um, what I think the multi-academy trust offers that is different, and again, this is not me saying it's, it, it, like it's a recipe for, for guaranteed success, but I think it offers the potential, um, because that organisation sets the strategic direction for all the schools in the group. So a single school doesn't simply say, uh, without the trust agreement at least, well, we don't want to back this anymore, we don't think, we, you know, we don't want our teachers to do that. And what the trust can do is it can organise, like, time, for example, it can start to make sure that teachers have that time, so that they're not doing it all in their own hours, they're doing it, perhaps, you know, while, while, while they're in school. Um, and I'm, we're seeing some of that stuff going on, so you're right, it's not that being in a trust is like a panacea, but for me there's a potential there uh, that I think is really exciting. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was going to ask you, Obviously, we talked a little bit about sort of the um, the budgeting issues and yeah. potential strike action. You sort of covered that. But if you were education secretary, what's one thing you would add to education, and what's one thing you would take away or remove? Oh, it's a great question. Uh, so, add money. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? That's yeah. like the obvious answer. Although I would like, if you're going to say money, yeah. I want to know where you would take money from yeah. to put money in. 
and pin you down to an actual answer, Steve. Pin me down to that. an actual answer. Well, I mean, I, I don't think I could make the case that the government needs to take or, or should take money from any part of education, right? I mean... No, but I'm not talking in education. I'm, I'm just yeah, talking in general, from, from budgets. From, from, from society. Well, I mean, Which I'm, sector? Or do, you, or do you believe in tax increases? Well, so, to sort so, so I mean, it's, not, it's not my job really to speak yeah. on behalf of, um, <laughs> of, of the organisation I represent. Yeah. But I'll tell you something as an individual. I'll give you an individual yeah. reflection. And my reflection is, one of the things I really love about uh, you know being part of this country is the way we put our arms around each other. It's the way that we support people who are vulnerable, uh, and that's children, that's adults. Um, it, it, and so, from my perspective, I think that's a really important obligation of the state is to make sure we're looking after people who need our help. So, as a, as a private individual, would I countenance the government um, increasing taxes if I knew that that was going to lead to better quality of services and so on? As an individual citizen, yeah, I can, I can deal with that. Um, I mean, what, what I think we need in the system is we need more funding. What I would say is, also, there's the, there's the point about general funding across the system, but we've got some specific pinch points as well. And part of the sector I'm really concerned about is, is, is SEND. Really clear messages coming from the same sector. I mean, we're hearing this not just now with the cost of living crisis, but we were hearing this through the pandemic as well. Real cost pressures that they were facing at that time. Um, just, just, just to say, stay open and to, and, and to stay yeah. safe. Uh, and that's continued and worsened as a result of the cost pressures. So I think we need some more funding, but particularly around SEND. Uh, would you like to see more alternative provision and, and more sort of funding going into that? Yeah, I think it's a similar story to SEND is what I'm hearing from the sector. Again, um, it's, I think it's that part of the sector that governments don't speak about enough. So it can be, you feel like it's sort of hard off somewhere. Um, but it's a really important part, like, like alternative provision, the clues in the name, right? So for some children, that, um, that provision, that alternative provision, is the thing that they need in order to get the best quality of education. Why the heck wouldn't they fund that and make sure that the funding? And what I'm hearing again is that, yeah, there are issues there as well that need to be addressed. And what about um, sort of to, uh, that's add money, what about remove? Oh, the, re the remove. The remove, the takeaway. The takeaway. Yeah, um, that's a really good question. So, I mean, one of the things that I'm worried about in the system is the is the pendulum swing that we sometimes see taking place. I mean, you, you, I mean you, you're, you're on Twitter, aren't you? We see it with the with the progs and the trads and you know that that sense that um, I think we see building a little bit now. But actually, we need to reform education, and to do that, we need to do stuff that's very very different to um, you know what we're doing at the moment. Um, uh, I worry about it a bit, and I worry about it for teachers on the ground because, of course, it's easy for people in policy or you know in government to sit on high and say, "Okay, right, we're going to reform assessment, or we're going to you know we're going to this new initiative." Often, it's the teachers on the ground who feel the burn there, right? Because they're suddenly having to say, "Well, hang on a minute, we, we well, I don't know what, what we were doing the knowledge rich curriculum. You telling me that doesn't matter anymore?" You know, so so my message, and I'm talking to policymakers about this, is about saying, you know, from all different parties is about saying to the naturally we've got to do better than reinforcing the pendulum swing. What we need to do is we need to build, right? We need to build on the good stuff that's happening in the education system at the moment. And let's not just swing in a completely different direction um, because it feels intuitively the right thing to do when you reform. My worry about that is teacher burnout. But we've got to do better for teachers than that. Steve, thanks ever so much for your time today. No worries. Thank you, Tom. Thank you.
welcome back to uh, Teachers Talk Radio, the Schools and Academy show in Birmingham. Uh, had some fantastic interviews so far, and here comes another one. I'm going to let my guests introduce themselves. Okay, hi, um, my name is Dr. Amy Such. I'm Dr. Lisa Green Moses. We're both oh. education and psychologists. Okay, <laughs> wonderful. And what are you? What is your sort of um, aim here today at the Schools and Academy show? Why are you here? Wellbeing Psychology, um, and we're we're a community interest company. So we're all about providing educational psychology services to schools and academies, um, and the greater community, I suppose, and about giving something back as well. So this is a great opportunity to come along, have some space to really promote our message, but also you know to to be a part of something much bigger and talk to other education providers and people who work within schools to kind of do some networking, find out what's going on in in schools and work out what we can be doing to help to have that really meaningful impact on our schools and communities. Um, what do you think are the challenges facing young people at the moment? Facing young people, there's a lot. I think, I'm sure many of your previous interviewees have talked about the COVID pandemic and kind of the outcome of that being a lot around thinking about the way that we relate to each other. People mention mental health and things like that but I think it's all really around relational you know connectivity with each other and we kind of lost that lost that some of that ability um, so we see that with some young people really nervous about making those connections again um, some concerns around being in schools as well as at the younger end of things you know some of the opportunities for skill building having been missed so there is kind of broad spectrum of things that have been a consequence of the increase uh, view then on academics and outcomes we kind of sometimes miss some of those nuances of what's going on for those young people with that focus and what were you talking about today what were the sort of key takeaways from what you're, you talked about so we were introducing something that we're calling the SEND health check so it's almost like a whole school audit um, in terms of your special educational needs provision, your mental health provision, your, your learning, your cognition provision. Um, and it's something that you know, we think is really important for all schools to know where they're at with that. And also something that we can come in and provide as that external, objective, critical friend to support our schools and their school community in you know, really, truly inclusive practice, meeting, making sure they're meeting everybody's needs in that environment. I know this is a very broad stroke question, um, as all of these are, but um, if you were to sort of pick two or three things that the average classroom teacher should know about when it comes to children in, in school, really specifically um, at the moment, um, whether it be you know, a few pieces of research or a few sort of um, things to be aware of, what, what would those few things be? say one of them would be around being able to um, have a sense of belonging so everyone wants to belong no one wants to feel outside of the crowd um, and so one thing that I feel we all want and need as humans is that sense of connection that sense of being part of a group um, but we can sometimes miss that uh, when we're wanting to kind of get on with things and make sure things are making you know we're making progress and so on that the sense of belonging can sometimes be missing and it's part of actually that child feeling safe and able to then connect 
and learn. Um, yeah, so that would be one of my key bits. Interesting. Anything you want to add to that? Um, along a similar vein, I would say, is around, you know, we've had a lot of narrative around that catch-up curriculum and academic learning, but actually that sense of belonging, that, that sense of security in the classroom, if you don't have that, you're not going to get that learning. And so quite often, you know, we meet teachers who are working so, so hard to really push that academic agenda. You know, they're saying we're doing everything and they're just not taking the learning in. But actually that child is just so maybe hypervigilant in the classroom, just feeling very anxious right now. And we need to strip it back and actually giving teachers permission to say, hey, you know what, I need to just connect with this child first before I, I try and do any teaching. And actually that is teaching in itself and to recognise the values that teachers have as being that person of security and safety, you know, way beyond just providing academic information. I think overall it's about we're human. Yeah. And so whilst they're children and other people that we're teaching, they're still human. So the feelings, you know, not every day we get up and we're 100% ready and raring to go. That's the same for everyone in the class. So I think teachers are really skilled at noticing that um, and giving themselves permission and think as part of our job to go, you know, we can recognise that, we can take that way. Do you think, do you think there's, some would say that there's too much pressure on teachers to be everything apart from a teacher? Uh, psychologist, social worker, uh, doctor, administrator, uh, content producer. Uh, <laughs> I could go on and I could go yeah. on and on and on. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, like, where your approach sort of fits into that, and whether you sort of like what what do you propose to sort of combat that issue? I suppose our, our approach is to kind of come alongside the school and recognise those pressures and then help the school to work through those pressures. So it might be about reducing a pressure, it might be about saying, okay, look, you can't do a million things at once, so what do we want to look at right now? And just almost providing a bit of clarity. So not, yeah. not necessarily a solution, but just giving that headspace to think really logically about, okay, these are the 10 things I need to get done, but what do I need to get done right now? You know, what's, what is urgent, what is important? And then providing that kind of, that backup and that someone to just talk it through with so when these things aren't quite going the way they, they hope they would go, they've got somebody on the end of the phone to say, hey, don't worry about it, we can, we can work through this together. And I think part of what we do in our role is to think about building a shared understanding and I think like Amy said, we have those discussions around what's possible, what's feasible, what can you do, because there's time pressure, there's you know marking pressure, there's Ofsted pressure, there's all of these things going on. So sometimes it is about we can come in and help build a shared understanding and that in itself can be an intervention, that in itself can helping move people's thinking along in terms of understanding can just be a thing that supports the child um, in the class or begins that journey along uh, in the way that they need to be supported to progress. So we're not here to kind of add on to what's going on, we're here to kind of help and support and tweak and enable staff and enable those peoples to have the best kind of school classroom experience that they can. So final question is just about schools and academy show. So obviously you've been here today. It can either be a takeaway from the day so far or something that you're looking forward to in the rest of the day. A takeaway I've had is just the creativity. It's been really great, one, to be face to face and two, to just see the creativity. The things that people have thought about have worked really hard at putting together the schools to streamline things, to make things 
easier and we know now more than ever with funding pressures and time pressures that that is something that schools are looking for so I think that creativity has just been really heartening and inspiring. Something I'm looking forward to the rest of the day is my birthday. So oh. I'm having a Chinese with my family tonight. Get in there. This has been really good fun and it, you know, it will be a birthday I remember. Well, happy birthday from Teachers Talk Radio. Um, enjoy the rest of your day and thanks for popping over. everyone and welcome back we are live with teachers talk radio the schools and academy show in birmingham and i'm delighted to be joined by joe brassington who's here and joe you've been do you want to tell us what you're doing here today sure good morning um i'm here today i was speaking on a panel about how we get inclusion right in safeguarding particularly around lgbtq plus people so how we look at our safeguarding policies procedures and our training for our staff and make sure that it is inclusive of lgbtq what are the challenges that um, you think are around at the moment? I think one of the biggest challenges is teachers' perceptions. Um, the majority of people working in our schools at the moment, and certainly the majority of people leading in our schools, were educated in a time where, inclusion, where our education system wasn't inclusive. And there was a specific policy in place to ensure that it wasn't inclusive. So whether we're aware of it or not, we all have these preconceived ideas of what a school should look like, which are based on our own experiences. So I think that the challenge is encouraging teachers um, and, and those working in educational spaces to, to reimagine what, what inclusion looks like in an educational space. Um, and I think that, that starts off with, I was just speaking about how important it is to establish a common inclusion goal in your school that you've all agreed on. So the one that we suggest at Pride and Progress is that we want every person in our school community to feel that they can be themselves, feel safe, feel seen and supported, and feel like they belong here. And surely as educators, we all agree with that. So with that common inclusive goal, that's when we can start to have the, the conversations that are a bit more difficult around language or around LGBT inclusion. Um, what sort of inspired you personally to, to set all this stuff up and do what you're doing? Um, in my third year of teaching, fourth year of teaching, um, a child in my class at the time shouted some pretty awful homophobic and transphobic things at me in front of my class. And up until that moment, I hadn't really ever thought about being open in school or why it might matter. But in that moment, I kind of realised it. If I was silent about that, then I was teaching that that was acceptable. So, so I came out to my class for the first time that day. I, I, I had a conversation about about my identity, and it was such a it was such a good conversation. Kids are great, um, and, and from then I kind of started to have wider conversations about actually how important that visibility and representation is, and how we can make all teachers aware of, of why that's important. Yeah. Um, do you think there's sort of any pushback against you from within the sector? I think, I think one of the key challenges that we face at the minute is that the rhetoric within the media and within certain um, government officials is anti-trans um, and is transphobic. We're seeing a lot of kind of what we saw in the 80s towards gay and lesbian people being mirrored in conversations around trans and non-binary people now. And I think that, that impacts people's perceptions of what is or isn't acceptable. But 
unfortunately, there, there is legislation in, in place that, that is a backup for us. So the Equality Act, the new RSE guidance, we were just talking then about how in the updated version of Keeping Children Safe in Education, there is a specific paragraph around LGBT plus people, and it is LGBT, the T is, the T is very clearly there. So, so really, whether there's pushback or not, it, it, it's, it's statutory now, it's in the Keeping Children Safe in Education Act that we make those safe spaces for people. What do you think some of the sort of um, policies that schools have, um, not all schools, but what do you think are some policies that sort of might run against some of the things that you think should be happening? You know, give me some examples of some sort of, whether it be policies, whether it be philosophies, whether it be, you know, I remember on TTR, it was a couple of months back now, we had a debate about... Um, wasn't really a debate but a discussion around um, toilets and the provision for toilets so I was wondering what are the issues that you think um, sort of are there any policies that you think run against what you're saying yeah and it goes back to that thing that, that so many of our school buildings were built in a time when our education wasn't inclusive and so many of our staff were educated in a time when it wasn't inclusive so there's so many things that are so the legislation that stopped LGBT inclusion in schools was repealed in 2003, but they kind of repealed it and, and took it away, but those, those things are still deeply rooted into our schools. So it's how we start to unroot those. And I, I think you're right, um, toilets is one of them, changing rooms is one of them, the conversation around um, school trips and, and how, we, how we navigate that with, with trans people. Um, there are, our schools are very gendered spaces, more gendered than society is more broadly often. So it, there, there are lots of conversations about the physical space and how we get that right. Um, and I think it's really important that we we think about individual cases in that situation. Um, there's, there, we, we always say like there, there are as many ways to be a woman as there are women, as many ways to be a man as there are men, and there are as many ways to be a, a trans person as there are trans people. So different children will require different things. And if you want your school to be an inclusive space, you've, you've got to get that culture right also make space for those conversations with an individual about actually the toilets we have aren't working for you what can we do what reasonable adjustments can we put in place to support you or we're going on this school trip the accommodation is sex segregated what reasonable adjustments can we put in place to support you and having those conversations with individual young people that need that extra support is really important sounds sounds really good work really interesting thanks for sharing it um, wish we had more time but we don't um, but maybe at some point you can come back on TTR and tell us more about everything sure thanks for having me um, enjoy the rest of your day cheers Joe bye bye We are back at the Schools and Academy show on Teachers Talk Radio, and I've now joined by Melanie Renaldon, who is the Chief Executive of the National Institute of Teaching. Hello. That's a long-barreled um, title. Yes, title. Yes, yeah. 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 Tell me, tell me about what you're doing here today at the Schools and Academy show. Well, I've just been on the main stage actually uh, towards the start of the day, um, and I wanted to tell people, tell the teachers who are here about the National Institute of Teaching because we're a really new organisation, and so lots of people won't have heard about us. And so, really, in the short time I had on the stage, I wanted to just pique people's interest, um, tell them enough to get them just a kind of little bit of understanding about why we've been set up. 
we're planning to do and why we think it's important. And then hopefully they'll come back and find out more um, as we get working. What's the, here's a question for you, Melanie. Yeah. What what is the difference between the National Institute of Teaching and the Charter College of Teaching and other organisations? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And the one that I'll, I'll fill in the gap for you, because the one that also comes up is the Education Endowment Foundation. Yes, What's yes, our relationship yes. with those system organisations? So the first thing I'd say is it's a good question and it comes up, other people ask it as well. And so we are working really well with those other system organisations. So so I'm in regular, have regular conversations with Dave Allison Peacock at the Chartered College and then with Professor Becky Allen at the Education Endowment Foundation. And so as we're building our organisation, we're doing that in the conscious of the other organisations that exist here and thinking, what do you do well? What do, what do you do well? And where's the space where we can play a role that's complementary to work that they're doing? So that dialogue's going on all the time. Um, and then what we are set up to do is, as a group of schools, I mean, founded by schools, and we are weaving schools, teachers, leaders through everything that we're doing. So the governance, the organisation, the leadership, the way that we're designing and delivering the work that we're doing, um, and uh, the consultation, and then through delivery as well, through disseminating our work sensitive to what schools and teachers and leaders need and what we're um, here to do is to boost the quality of teacher and leader development and we're doing that through experimentation, innovation and in driving up quality through direct delivery of programmes as well. So we think that that is an important niche that we can play here that does complement and build on what the Charter College and what the Education Endowment Foundation are doing as well. Is it a member organisation like no. the Charter College? No, no, no. Exactly, and that's an important difference as well. Uh, so no, not a member organisation. Um, so we were initiated by the Department of Education. Um, so the, the original, um, uh, there was a, a tender that the Department of Education uh, put out, which we responded to, but really the genesis of the National Institute comes from um, a group of schools, school leaders coming together who already had a lot of experience and track record in delivering teacher development within their schools and then beyond their school boundaries saying we, we could be better at this and it is so important because like, when, when it comes down to it, when it boils down to it, it's all about the teachers. Really, every conversation but that's that we what have, I was going to I was going to ask you. I mean, do you ever not worry that the sort of grassroots, at the chalk faced teacher is sometimes forgotten in yeah. conversations, dialogues, within, even within organisations yeah. that, that are supposed to represent them. So how are you going to make sure that the classroom teacher is always at the forefront of what you do? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I do worry about that. And, and, I, and I worry about it, and I think it's helpful for me to worry about it in our organisation as well. Because just having been set up by a group of schools doesn't keep you there. Like, of course, yeah. you know, as you set up an organisation, you drift further away from the day-to-day -day realities of schools. So I will need to make decisions. Our organisation needs to have a culture and we need to make sort of structural and resourcing decisions that do keep classroom teachers right at the heart and the centre and keep them really visible and really directing our work as well as hopefully benefiting from it. So if I give you an example of that, um, of how we're thinking, sort of an example of how we're thinking about it, um, we have a, 
um, a remit to conduct research. Um, and so we've got within uh, the National Institute, we have a sort of research lab. So it's our research and best practice function. So we're going to be uh, carrying out research, so research summaries, we'll be doing primary research as well. And then we're going to be um, getting that out there into the system and, and hoping, helping it get used well. Um, and so, of course, there's loads of things we could be investigating in our research function. Yeah. Um, and there's like no shortage of questions, like important questions about how we recruit, train, develop, um, uh, retain teachers and leaders that we can get our teeth into. But we want that agenda to be set in partnership with schools and teachers. So one of the things we're working on at the moment is how we create that sort of participatory agenda setting with teachers so that they are saying to us, these are the questions that we think that you should be focusing your efforts at uh, and in this order. Because, it, you know, we've got to start there. Otherwise, if we're, you know, sitting in our, in our ivory tower thinking about these things and without that dialogue with teachers, the risk is we do what is, I'm sure, you know, moves up, brings up understanding forward. If it then has a disconnect with teachers and schools and they're not able to pick it up and use it and value it and see how it's going to make a difference to their day to day, then really it's all for noise. I mean, sort of what's the point of us having, kind of thinking, thinking about these things, investigating these things, learning more, if it's not then getting out and into practice. Um, so, so that's an example of how like, we're trying to think about this, getting, your, your exact point, can you get teachers' voices into everything that we're doing in the institute? Yeah, brilliant. And um, final question is, yeah. if you're Education Secretary now, what's one thing you would add to the school system and what's one thing you would take away Crikey. from the school system? I, I needed a advance notice of that one. Um, so, and I think, so it'd be really easy to think about money, wouldn't it? And I'm going to try not to do that because that feels like it's the sort of the easy but impossible yeah, yeah, answer. Yeah. I, I would add that focus that I just was talking about, about is all about the teachers. Like ultimately, everything that we're talking about, accountability, curriculum, you know, decisions that go on, all boils down to the people that work in the schools, and particularly the teachers that are in the classrooms. And I think too much in our system, um, it's actually, um, it's like it doesn't recognise and, and seems to not, um, uh, be built to tackle that fact. Uh, so, for example, the way that decisions are made in uh, in schools and in groups of schools, you get this sort of siloing effect going on between decisions about teaching and learning and focus on outcomes for children, and decisions about the people, the teachers, who are actually the people who are going to deliver, make, uh, make the difference and deliver the results. So, I would add putting teachers at the forefront of every decision that's being made and when it when it comes to thinking about spending isn't it isn't well. it mad that we're saying that's something to add when really that should well just i just be think it comes it comes too often further <laughs> yeah, down the list well, it does it? yeah absolutely it's like you've just everything we're talking about is teachers first isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah so that's one thing i'd add what a takeaway oh gosh i would cautiously take away some of the constraints and sometimes it's a sort of bureaucracy which in lots of cases it has sort of come into existence for good reason that can stop us innovating uh, so if i think about 
teacher, um, initial teacher training, for example, and teacher recruitment. I've been working in teacher development, teacher recruitment for 25 years. Uh, 1997, I was first working at what was then the teacher training agency, yeah. teacher recruitment, and we were having versions of the same conversation about how we identify and get teachers into classrooms and what that re like recruitment funnel looked like of getting yeah. people through the process. And I think there's actually been very little kind of change and innovation in that process. And some of that is because actually we've sort of set systems up that stop that innovation happening. So it's one of the things that we want to do is we do want to do these sort of targeted, high quality experiments that we can learn from and then we can think about scaling on and driving innovation so that it really makes a tangible difference. So right. we're not going around this same cycle every time that there's a, the economy picks up, like we're having desperate times trying to get teachers to come into what we know is a brilliant job. Oh, so yeah, yeah I, I do that, get rid of some of the, some of the barriers to innovation. Brilliant. Melanie, thanks ever so much for your time. <laughs> Sorry you that pleasure. was very much. and welcome back to the Schools and Academy show. Uh, we are now into the afternoon sessions um, here, and we are live at Teachers Talk Radio at the Content Lounge. And I've got two special guests joining me, and I'm gonna let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Montserrat McShane from the Teacher Wellbeing, Workload and Impact on Schools team, and I'm joined by my colleague, Naomi Byrne, and I'm also from the uh, Teacher Workload, Wellbeing and Impact on Schools team of the Department for Education. Prior to that though, and I think importantly, I was uh, a school teacher and a school leader for 20 years on the ground, and so was my colleague, and actually more of us in the team are ex-teachers and leaders, so yeah. We haven't still got skin in the game, so to speak, but we're, we're very committed to, to the cause. Okay, let's talk about the cause, because things have gone quite wrong haven't they we, we've probably got the most amount of teachers quitting than we've ever had now that's not necessarily down just to workload there is a whole combination of factors there but what what are so what are the department of education doing or going to do to try and make teachers lives easier we've been saying this for years but something radical surely needs to happen are people in the dfe aware of that very aware. I think. I think. I think awareness isn't isn't the, the the main concern. It might not look like that to the sector, but I'm, I'm here to say that awareness is very strong in the department. I think one of the difficulties that um, government faces is, you know, needing to get things done and needing to create change and reform for the sector. There's workload implications in there. One of the big things that our team tries to do within the department is kind of teach the department, teach the other policy areas about workload reduction techniques and really embedding that approach to um, policy development that has workload reduction and the impact of that policy um, thought through from the outset. And that's, that's a change and that's a difficult piece of work to do. For instance, recently, and we'll be talking to unions about this next week, um, submissions to ministers, so where we put forward advice to ministers, have been recently changed to include a reference to workload. So policy areas, before they put that those, those um, submissions 
questions up to ministers, they've got to have considered workload implications. And I think that sounds like a small thing. It's actually a really challenging thing to do. Montserrat's been in, involved in that, so you might want to say more about that, Montserrat. Yeah, definitely. I think what we're wanting colleagues to do across the department is before you set up a policy, before you put out a new piece of guidance, is to stop and think, is this putting additional workload on teachers? Could it affect their well-being? Is it being done somewhere else in the department? You know, can we streamline what we're asking for? Is it really needed? These are all questions that we really need to ask and that sometimes can get lost in kind of the government machine of getting things done. As a team, we've got a number of ways that we do that. That's the internal work, but we also deliver support to schools uh, in addition to the internal work through a number of things. So we've got the Education Staff Wellbeing Charter, which was published in November 2021. We've got over 2,300 schools signed up. And the charter sets out commitments from the department, Ofsted and schools themselves to drive down workload, value wellbeing uh, and mental health of education staff. And we're very conscious to mention that that doesn't just include teachers, you know, schools are run by all kinds of staff, including operational staff. And we all know that they have their own workload challenges. So uh, yeah, I think the charter is quite a powerful lever in that. And we're also trying to raise awareness of it across the department because as a department, we've all got you know a role to play in reducing burdens on teachers and leaders. And then we also have the School Workload Reduction Toolkit, which is published on gov.uk. And it's a set of resources uh, by school leaders for leaders. So we haven't created them, they've been sourced from the sector. And it allows schools to identify workload issues, and it's got a lot of different ways to solve them, different examples of how schools have done it. And we've even done projects as well where schools have used the toolkit. The evidence has shown it reduced workload and it also improved pupil outcomes. So we know that there's so many incentives to do these things. I don't know if you want to come on. Just, just on the toolkit, I think it's, you know, again, it's it's kind of like, it's easy to say, but it's it's um, it's, it's it's wrong to underestimate the impact of a tool like that. Um, so I left education just under three years ago, and, and I know that that would have been transformative if I could have, you know, worked with leaders in my skill to identify what the big drivers of high workload were, because it was too high, workload was too high. When I was on the ground, it still is. It's... You know the pandemic has contributed to, to a spike in, in workload too, and um, it would it would have transformed my experience of teaching in my final few years of, of teaching in leadership roles because it, it's that really powerful tool, as Montserrat said, created by teachers for teachers. So this isn't civil servants haven't dread this up. This is these are tried and tested things that work in schools. But that evidence again, it's like we just mustn't underestimate that. That's so powerful. We've we've tested these. We know they reduce teacher teacher hours, like the actual hours the teachers are working outside of the classroom. But again, like like Montserrat said, that that's it's a small point, but it's, that's enormous. Like just think about that. In in some of our research, we've got evidence that shows pupil progress increased when these when these activities were um, were looked at and reduced. I mean, that's, that's a no-brainer. I hate that expression, but we know that, don't we? Like, it's not a surprise if, if, if teachers are in a better position with their workload, you know, they will be better teachers. Better teachers produce better outcomes for children. But I just think that's... that's but do you, th do you think the workload, though, goes beyond 
say are talking do you think some of it is just stuff that is so ingrained and so systematic that it can't yes. actually be changed or at the very least it could be changed but for example ppa you know statutory ppa that's my personal sort of thing where i'm i'm sort of saying that's where the real sort of workload reduction and well-being value would be is there some areas within policy that can be reduced down i don't know what but somewhere to grab some money from maybe the abolition of ofsted but to grab some money from that would sort that out and help that yeah i think there's a lot of work going on across the department there I think, is, yeah. like i said the, the, the unit that we work in isn't about those hard yeah no. right we yeah. haven't got the money yeah 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 we haven't got the, of course. the power it's very few um, of us so what, yeah. what we're doing is but like, you could influence it we do yes, that's we what do. we're trying to do we're trying to use those soft levers to influence yeah. things internally to influence yeah. the sector externally and you're right there are you know we, we put a lot of stock don't we in things like ppa and we're right to and rarely covering in our ppa we're right to do that and it's the, those are really important protections but there's so much more that can be done around that i remember the amount of data that i entered in different formats the same data in different formats that was nothing to do with you know government hadn't asked me to do that that was the setup of that school set setting setting its ways in terms of certain types of work and um, things like things like marking policies there are still schools that are doing marking that, that there is no evidence marking in a way that is massively workload heavy but there's no evidence that it is any good for pupils so you know there is stuff the government needs to do there's absolutely stuff that the sector needs to do and the senior leadership in, in certain schools really need to think about and, and get a grip of you know and and, and that there's, there's a phrase that we repeat all the time um, culture eat strategy for breakfast so strategically there's lots of big stuff that can be done but if the culture of that school isn't one in which unnecessary workload is addressed yeah. in which staff well-being is taken more seriously than yogurt once a term and fruit on a friday unless those cultural changes happen that big strategic stuff will not stick it won't have any impact and it might be that, that you know ppa could be increased but if those poor practices still exist in that school, mm. that PPA will, will be, be taken filled. up yeah. by nonsense tasks that don't improve yeah. teaching. Definitely. Like what we always hear from teachers is that they don't mind having to do work if it's for the benefit of the pupils. Obviously, you know, to a certain degree, we can only Definitely. reduce workload down to a certain level because you know the yeah. job is always going yeah, to involve That's said, the structural work. things. Apply. Yes, but it's yeah. you know, as Naomi said, it, it's really the culture, the whole school culture. Yeah. What what things, for example, if you're bringing something new in as a senior leader, is there something you can tell your staff to stop doing? Yeah. Is there something you could take away? Could you ask them what things are we doing? Do you feel doesn't benefit the pupils. For example, we work with a senior leader who's got a Room 101 document, and every term she'll meet with staff and they'll put things on there that they want to chuck away. And some of those things do get checked and they're listened to. So I think, you know, more. We have a like show that. on Teachers Hall Radio called Staff Room 101, where we chuck things we don't like in education into it. So I like whoever that head teacher is. Well, but she's stolen our idea, so. Well, she, yeah, she's called Liz Weather. She always likes to hear from people. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, if you want her details, she's a, yeah, she's, yeah, she's an excellent school leader. She was involved in the creation yeah. of the toolkit as well. So, yeah. Folks, I think that's it. Uh, thank you very much for spending 10 minutes with me over here. So uh, have a nice rest of the day. Thank you.
thanks a lot. Cheers. Welcome back to Teachers Talk Radio at the Schools and Academy show. We are now into the afternoon and we have a Teachers Talk Radio mug delivered with water in it. Um, and uh, I'm joined by Emma Knight, OBE. And Emma, I'll let you sort of introduce yourself a little bit as well. Go ahead. Thank you. I'm Chief Executive of the National Governance Association. So we are the school and trust governance experts we don't try and do anything else we um very much there to support all schools to govern well right um let me ask you then what what was it well first of all what was your keynote talk about what were your key sort of things anything new anything interesting that people should know i'm sure there was lots of interest I love to start. I love to start an interview with an insult. It, it always sets the tone for everything to come. Well, what was very pleasing was it was right at the end of the day, and there were still people there. So I'm taking that as a positive. But there were sort of three things. One is don't forget that your governing board is the accountable body for your school, whether that's a maintained school or a trust. So they will be the people who are deciding the next steps for your school. Um, are you going to join a MAT? And if so, which one? And I talk Do you think they should? Oh, now we wouldn't tell individual schools uh, what they should do because that is the job of our governance. So what we do is provide them with lots of guidance about things like questions to ask, things to consider, how to do due diligence, so that sort of legal, legal side of things. And they will know in their locality what other schools are doing, what's best for their pupils, what are the challenges um, there. Uh, but we can, and we're really happy to, come and talk to, to schools about their individual circumstances. And in those cases, we'll be saying to them, oh, look, that's really good, you're having a conversation about culture, but have you actually looked at this thing called the scheme delegation? Because you need to, you need to do that. So yes, talking about uh, maintained schools, but also let's not forget single academy trusts because they're also being asked by the government to join, to join a MAT. Um, so their, their views um, are, are really important. And then we talked about the MAT boards themselves, the boards of trustees. Uh, are they looking to grow? And if so, how are they going to achieve that? Um, most of them want other schools to join them, sort of one by one, in a calm, controlled growth. Yeah. But the other way to do it is by merging two trusts. So I talked a little bit about that and how yeah. we might go about considering that. And then the last section was so what does good governance look like? So we started this morning, I've got a bookend with the um, uh, Baroness Baron, the Minister uh, for the school system, because she talked about strong trusts and said that strategic governance was part of, part of that. Yeah. So I was trying to unpack that a little bit and saying, actually, we know what strong strategic governance is. I would be very surprised if there is very much new or different. It's about doing those things well, making good decisions. But I was having a little celebrate that um, the white paper talks about the importance of community and the importance of locality. So whatever structure people govern in, whether they're in individual schools or in trusts, 
everybody talks about how important it is for schools to be embedded in their communities, to be listening to parents. Um, and what and, role and do others. governors play in that in Europe? What should so they, they be playing? They, they should have a really important role in that because if you think of whether you're a single school, but let's just think it's more complicated in a trust, in a mat because you've got your board of trustees who are by definition going to be a little bit distant from the schools. They're not going to know each and every school like the local governors do. So the local governors are the eyes and ears of the trust board. So that was a little phrase we started using about a decade ago and we still and we still use it because it's part of the core function of those local local governors that they feed up to the trust board and say, hang on. In our community, what people are telling us is most important or won't work yeah. or have you heard about this? Um, so that's, that's crucial. The other thing that is really crucial for local governors and that's to do is to monitor educational standards. And that's why most people volunteer because they care about kids' education. So that's a really important part. And the other thing that governors very much get involved in is making sure that safeguarding is good and strong but also increasingly making sure that um, SEND provision, special education yeah. needs provision is good and strong. Yeah. So there's so much for local governors to do within a mat. You know, we're arguing that the department has now said that it's part of the system and we're saying that local governance <laughs> is here to stay. We need to make sure it's meaningful. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the key word, isn't it? I mean, in terms of like, te you know, we are obviously teachers talk radio, so people who listen to this are probably yeah. teachers. So, like, for a teacher, sometimes, you know, I think in my career, I don't think I've ever met a governor. Oh, that's not good, is it? Um, maybe what? No, that's a lie. Maybe once or twice, but we're talking over a period of sort of yep. 14 years, yep. 15 years, or whatever. So. Oh, so can I say a bit about? I didn't talk about this in my speech, but can I say a little bit do. around? So teaching staff and indeed other, other staff who, who aren't uh, teaching, um, uh, we say that uh, governors should be engaging, I mentioned you know, parents because of the community yeah. aspect of it, but they should also be engaging with staff and pupils. So we ask questions of, of, of governing boards about this in our annual survey. It's really interesting, they think they engage best with their staff. But actually, when you ask them what they've done as a result, they've done least as a result of staff voice. And I think that's because they sometimes know members of staff. They might have recruited yeah, them. Or, for example, yeah. they'll work closely with the Senko. They'll work, for example, with yeah. the senior leadership team. So I think they, they believe that, that, that they've got more rapport, perhaps, with the staff than they actually have. So we're saying yeah. to them, OK, absolutely minimum you should be doing is a staff survey. But then you should look at that and go, so what are we doing as a result? We don't just survey, you know, for the sake of it, do you? And that might mean you ought to have a conversation with a few members of staff. If you get something in that survey that you're not sure about, you need to, you need to improve. So one is engagement. Definitely, it's a bit sad if staff don't know who the governors are, if we don't see them in school. I mean, maybe that's not common. I mean, that's only my sort of sure. career experience, but I'm sure. sure there's many others with wildly They're different, different. experiences. Absolutely, but then the other thing, um, uh, which I think is, is really uh, important, is that if teachers themselves, of course, can govern, so they can either govern as a staff governor, which uh, is a really good experience to understand how the school works. But the other thing we've been doing with lots of success actually is encouraging 
middle leaders and senior leaders to govern at a different school or trust because yeah. that way they learn loads yeah. and also the other school benefits from their experience. Can I ask you a question about, because yeah. one of the things that sort of I personally often talk about but also in, on Teachers Talk Radio, you know, is sort of toxic schools and sort of like schools where the staff turnover is really high, where staff are obviously unhappy and so on. Now, quite often in those schools, um, the staff can't go to a leader because it could be that the leadership itself is one of the causes of the issues. They can't go to colleagues because they feel like they can't trust other people with their what getting advice. Now, could a member of staff sort of go to, I mean, what role could a governing body play in almost like whistleblowing? I mean, do, do, do governing bodies have a role there? So, Can teachers go to the governing body? So governing um, uh, bodies should have a whistleblowing policy. It's not used as much as perhaps it could be in the school sector. People are slightly worried about doing it, yeah. even though whistleblowers you know, will um, uh, tend to be anonymous. Yeah. The other thing, of course, you can do is use the, um, as it were, staff processes, but actually taking our grievance is a big deal. We know that. Yeah. Lots of people think, well, life is too short for yeah. that. I don't want to get embroiled in this process. But actually, sometimes it is really important yeah. in order to improve um, uh, things. So the trouble is that governors can't really get involved in individual cases initially yeah. and formally because they'll be involved in yeah. Yeah. A formal grievance. But that sort of goes back to that point about why it's really important to engage with staff because they should pick that, you know, they won't yeah. pick everything up. Definitely. But you'll get an inkling of things through surveys, through conversations. Yeah. You mentioned turnover. That's yeah. really, really important. Yeah. Boards should look at turnover. Yeah. They should also um, look at summaries of exit interviews or sometimes yeah. carry out the exit interviews themselves. I mean, most schools, that don't, doesn't, again, don't. doesn't happen. It doesn't. But can governors do that? Yes. So one of the things we've been saying to governors for some years now is you need to make sure there's an exit interview policy. Um, and uh, you're right, we then ask people how often that happened, and the answer is not a lot. So we're really missing a trick in the school sector. Yeah. And there's now some you know, good people around that are talking about people, strategies, yeah. um, not just workload and, and um, well-being, which is important, but yeah. also just managing school employment issues well. So definitely, at the end of the day, if staff are not being treated well as an employee, it is the board's responsibility to employ people well. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> We've covered quite a lot in a few minutes. We really are. I mean, we're on how many minutes? Let me check. 11 minutes has gone already. Um, well, I, th I think that's it, really. I mean, I don't feel we can I can keep you. I could talk to you all day. It's an absolute pleasure. So um, maybe you can come on Teachers Talk Radio again for a more Absolutely. thorough conversation Absolutely. about these issues. And I can persuade more teachers to Thank you, and cheers, and uh, thanks very much for coming. Thank you.
welcome back to the Schools and Academy show with Teachers Talk Radio. Um, I'm here now with Alex French, who is, uh, well, I'll let you introduce yourself, Alex. Yeah, th- th- thanks, Tim. Um, Alex French, I'm from the Zending Group. We're a firm of auditors and accountants who work in the education sector. Um, and I'm the national head of profit. So why are you here today? So we're here today to engage with academies and schools um, to help them with their accounting and finance needs, um, providing range of services, cloud-based accounting software, payroll and auditing. Um, happy to have a chat to see how we can help. And um, what would you say are the current challenges um, for education finance? I, I think, as we all know, the budgets are extremely tight. Um, only like to get tighter. Um, we'll see what happens in, in today's budget from the Chancellor. Um, and where we can help with that really is by um, providing expert advice um, and software to help control budgets um, and keep really tight on top of them so that ultimately we can spend as much money educating the kids as possible. So what sort of things do you actually do in, 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 in that sense? What services do you provide? So, so they probably can be split into three three core areas. There's sort of compliance services which might focus around auditing, financial reporting. Um, then there's the actual um, functional services, the so payroll, cloud accounting to actually deliver the numbers. Um, and then probably most importantly is the advisory side. Um, we've worked with schools and academies for years. Um, I've, I've been doing it for the last 12 years since the very first academies came on board. Um, I've worked with the Education Schools Funding Agency in terms of setting budgets and reviewing applications for academies. Um, so yeah, we know an awful lot about the finance side and just very, very happy to have a chat and talk through how we can you know, give, give you would some you say you're, Would you say you're like the Elon Musk of finance? Um, in some ways, but hopefully not in every way. And uh, where can you be found? Uh, we're here today at Stand A33. Otherwise, it's um, all over social media or www.zendin.com. Brilliant. Thanks for popping over. Lovely. Thank you very much. Cheers, Alex. Cheers. So that's it. Uh, what, a, what a day it was. Uh, so many people that I met thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, thank you so much for listening along, spending an hour or so of your time. I hope you enjoyed the interviews as much as I did on the day. Uh, if you want to listen to more stuff like this, then go to ttradio.org forward slash listen back and you've got a list of all our shows uh, and we have shows every single day. Thanks for tuning in. See you again soon. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.